You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be talking shit. The Millennium Development Goal on sanitation is way off track. We'll be hearing from two frank-talking experts about why that is and what grassroots initiatives are doing to change the way people view sanitation. Also, this week saw the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death, or NCPOD, report on cosmetic surgery. The results have made national news, and we're talking to one of the authors about the problems they had collecting data and some of the implications of their findings. But first, Rebecca Coombs reports on sanitation. Every year, diarrhoea due to poor sanitation and unsafe water kills more children than AIDS, malaria and measles combined. Yet on the world stage, sanitation gets short shrift. Added as a Millennium Development Goal in 2002, the aim was to half the 2.6 billion people worldwide living without access to a clean, safe toilet. And we're on track to fall shamefully behind the 2015 deadline. Unfortunately for the other Millennium Development Goals, many of them will be hard to accomplish without first creating a safe, clean environment for vulnerable populations around the world. I asked Lila Mehta, a sociologist from the Institute of Development Studies, why we needed to have sanitation as a development goal and why we're falling behind. I guess it's been a taboo topic. It's been a taboo topic both at the local level as well as policymakers have really not recognised the links. And now there has been more concerted action, but there still are lots of stumbling blocks. Um, it still is quite difficult to, to, to reach the target. The sanitation MDG is, is seriously off track, unlike the water MDG, which is you know chugging along. Partly it has to do with definition, um, how we monitor progress. So sort of often simple pit latrines or latrines that just have slabs or that don't have uh, flushes or may not have a cover, or may not count as, as improved. So that means a lot of the toilets that have been built more recently may not count as improved. On current progress, the 2015 goal will not be met until 2049 globally, but in sub-Saharan Africa, not until the 23rd century. So there, there, are, there are obviously special issues in Africa going forward with this goal. Yes. Yes, there's a serious problem in, in Africa about the goal. And, uh, I mean, things are improving, I yes. think. Sanitation is now really becoming more high profile in Africa and different parts of Africa. Uh, different countries are running programs. There are dynamic programs around sanitation using a combination of different methodologies or approaches, some of them drawing on CLTS, some using sanitation marketing. But if you look at Kenya, at Ethiopia, in different countries, you know, things are moving. And, um, you know, ministers are actually talking about sanitation now. I think they've realised... So it's creeping up the agenda then? It is creeping up the agenda, yeah. Things are things are improving. But obviously, you know, you, when you think of how much money has been invested and how much global effort... I mean, there's lots of global attention on the issue, but somehow it's still lagging behind. So you just wonder, you know, why why we're missing the boat in some ways. Lila mentioned CLTS there. For those outside sanitation, that's community-led total sanitation, developed by Kamal Kar. Kamal is a development consultant from India. In 1999, he developed the CLTS programme, which is now taking root in 26 countries around the world. And it's leading the change in the way people think about sanitation, helping end the practice of open defecation. I spoke to Kamal earlier, and he has a couple of anecdotes which really illustrate why a top-down approach building toilets just doesn't work if you don't have the community on board. You see, uh, 
senior officer from UNICEF Togo told me in my in my training workshop in Mali. And this guy stood up and he said, Sir, when we, we conduct we constructed a very nice toilet block in a remote village in a school and then we went back after a couple of months to see that how they are being used. We were horror, you know, we we found that was the office of the principal of the school. Right. She shifted her office into that mm. and she you know I mean, she, she said that this is the best building in my school campus. Mm, you know. mm. It's a total mismatch. You know, a person whose costliest asset is a broken bicycle or a couple of goats, which is less than $50, mm. but the shitting place is $300, you know. Yeah. How do you feel? I mean, will you ever use it, you know? Uh, I, I remember recently some one farmer in, in Zambia, he told me that when Plan, Plan International constructed a lovely latrine, beautiful latrine in my home, and I was so proud I thought it was a beautiful plot. And then, naturally, I never used it. But they realized I was not using it. They forced me to use it. Hmm. And the day I did that, whole night I couldn't sleep. I said, why? Why did you, why, why you couldn't sleep? He said, I was just cursing myself, the tyranny of life. I was sleeping on a thatch roof and a mud wall. My shit was sleeping in a concrete wall and, you know, you know CGI teen, teen roof and everything. So I was cursing myself, you know, what, what is this life? Mm, yeah. Kamal, you started a, a sort of self-help movement, which has led to thousands of low-cost latrines springing up in South, Southeast Asia, Africa and beyond. Can you tell me about your approach and how it differs from the approach we've just described? Yeah. In fact, uh, the people from the whole village come to a common place and a common ground and they draw a ground map. We call it defecation area mapping. And then you ask them that, you know, one person from each family, could you just come on the map and stand where your house was? You give them a piece of paper to everybody and ask them to write down the head of the name of the family and put it on the ground and then ask them to get out of the map. Then you see that these are the houses. These are the houses, those small pieces of paper. Then you check the map, ask a kid that is there, what switch one is your house? The kid goes, goes and finds, oh, this is my house. Everybody claps, so that, that's fine. It's all fun. Hmm. Then you ask them that where do you go and defecate? Just keep a huge amount of, you know, yellow powder we keep it, or sawdust. There's a huge laughter. People go and pick up that yellow powder or sawdust, and then they, they, everybody runs and puts some hips of these things, you know. So you see that the, there are all dots of these yellow powders all around the village, close to the house, and some are distance, you know. But you will definitely find that some three, four places, large patches, because and the converging lines coming from those houses, because mm-hmm. these are the places of the bush where most of the people of the village go and shit. Mm-hmm. Then, then you ask them, okay, you put another green color or something. You tell them, okay, out of the map, please. Then you ask, okay, imagine this is it's raining and uh, you have got a shooting diarrhea, running diarrhea, and it's middle of the night. Would you walk that 10 minutes? Everybody says, oh, no, 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 we, we, I go behind your house and shit, and you come behind my house and do that, because in the night nobody watch you, and then we can't, you know, go mm, because it's yeah. emergency, this is called emergency defecation. Then yeah. you tell them, okay, this is a green powder, put it there. Then, you know, visually, there's a huge laughter, but people have started realizing, oh, shit, what the hell are we doing, you know? Mm, mm, and yeah. then, you know, it's a, through this, there are techniques, you know, these are the different techniques, you know, based around four three, four things, you know. One is the element of shame. Mm. Because you know that you are dealing with human beings. Maybe poor, uneducated, that's a different story, but all human beings. Mm-hmm. Element of shame, the element of disgust, the element of self-respect, 
and the element of fear because after that we asked them that how much how many of you suffered from diarrhea last month or something or had spent money on on enteric disease all hands up then by the time you will find the whole crowd is becoming completely silent you know the faces and and people are like you know started shouting with each other calling they coming to you could you please give us some money we will construct a toilet these are called we call it triggering moment you know obviously you you started here what is a a successful social movement and i wanted to ask you to what extent social mu- movements such as uh, C- clts depend on someone like yourself to lead them someone who's charismatic and exceptionally passionate about the cause see today i have now spread personally after developing this uh, you know this approach in bangladesh mm. personally i was involved with very hard work over the last 8 9 years and i have personally introduced it to at least 28 29 countries across asia africa and latin america and that is personally you've yeah. traveled to those countries yeah i have traveled extensively in these countries but every country i found and you know in francophone africa in lusophone you know portuguese speaking mozambique and you know french speaking bolivia and all this everywhere i did but every country i found there are people at different levels who has got a total knack on this you know and they are so good facilitators yes you know if you ask me i have developed at least 250 300 top class trainers you produce 1000 2000 natural leaders as community consultants in each country these countries it don't take long time for the countries to clean up you know you pay them small amount of money at 10 dollars per day or something even less which is a big money for them yes but it's a peanut for those big funding agencies who are wasting you know 300 400 dollars on one one latrine which is never used so it's a it won't take long time to achieve the mdg and change this whole situation you know Leaders are meeting in New York next week to discuss the Millennium Development Goals. So the message that needs to be delivered to them is that billions of people still live without basic sanitation and that to achieve all they want, they have to first fix that. And you can read Rebecca's feature online on bmj.com and in print this week. Now, cosmetic surgery is big business. Enough from works from private clinics. A recent NCPOD committee looked into those institutions and have published their report this week. Sasha Kamitovich reports. This week an NCPOD report into cosmetic surgery was published. It found that more than half of cosmetic surgery providers don't have all the equipment needed to deliver surgery safely and that nearly 1 in 5 don't have a policy to readmit patients who have had complications. Another problem highlighted in the document is the lack of compliance in reporting. The full details of the report can be found on the NCPOD website and we've covered the details of the report in this week's BMJ but to talk about some of the problems and potential regulatory solutions I'm joined on the phone by Alex Goodwin the clinical coordinator of the report and a consultant in anesthesia at Royal United Hospital in Bath Hi Dr Goodwin Good morning Can you tell us something about how many organizations actually contributed to the audit because I think the Royal College of Surgeons was quite alarmed by the fact that it was fewer than half of the organizations that you contacted actually um filled in the questionnaire Absolutely If I start at the beginning we identified through a trawl of uh, things like yellow pages and the internet uh, all Uh, organizations that advertise and claim to 
provide cosmetic surgery. So we sent out 1,093 questionnaires. We then looked at how many of those were eligible because there was a crossover between what one might call the injectable cosmetic surgery procedures as opposed to cosmetic surgery which involves um, a, a more invasive procedure and it was the invasive procedures we were looking at and found that we had 760 eligible sites to complete the questionnaires. So of the 760, we had a return rate of 361, which was 47.5%. Now, if we look at that group a little closer, within the hospitals that have NCPOD reporters, so come under our normal um, uh, sort of uh, area of influence, as you might say, we got a, a nearly 90% return. However, it was in the organizations outside our normal sphere of influence. And you might say these are those independent providers in large cities. Um, we got a much lower response, nearer right. the sort of 20% response. Um, so, yes, that was disturbing. And the main reason for that was that under the licensing terms of the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, these organizations are required to participate in national audit, and they didn't. What can be done about those who don't contribute to an audit? Is there any method to deal with them? Well, the CQC, sadly, its teeth aren't very sharp. Uh, although uh, yesterday, following the publish, uh, publishing our report, we have found that uh, the CQC have come out and said, following October the 1st, they will have greater powers to fine um, individuals, particularly who do not uh, adhere to their very rigorous and quite right so standards. Right, and in your opinion, is a fine enough? Well, I have to say, my concern is about patient outcome and care and mm. well-being, and I can't see how just a fine is going to affect that. Probably, you know, I think there should be harsher um, punishments to the extent of shutting places down. Yeah, I think that's what the Royal College was saying as well, weren't they, that um, if organisations aren't going to contribute to an audit that they shouldn't be practising. Yes, that's a very harsh um, opinion, but in my personal opinion, that's right. And is, are there some changes you'd like to see to advertising of these kind of services? Yeah, we looked very briefly at ad advertisements and we looked at all the cosmetic surgery advertisements we could find in published media, so magazines, newspapers, and we found that undoubtedly some providers... Um, go outside the guidelines laid down by the Advertising Standards Agency. Um, they advertise prices, uh, they use models as opposed to patients in their pictures, and when you think that they are aiming at a very vulnerable group of patients, you know, I think this is unacceptable. So apart from the CQC toughening up its um, measures, is, is there anything else you'd like to see? Does there need to be a change in the law to bring cosmetic surgery clinics under the law rather than this um, kind of voluntary code, really? At the end of the day, it requires government and statute to regulate cosmetic surgery. Um, you know, in the same way that surgery in the National Health Service is regulated. Um, but I was delighted yesterday to hear that the Royal College of Surgeons have set up a working party to um, set out a sort of kite-marking system whereby cosmetic surgeons can apply for and hopefully gain this kite mark. Should the GMC have a role here? That might be one way forward. You know, should the GMC, should there be a proper 
cosmetic surgery specialty in the way that you have um, a general surgery specialty or an anaesthetic specialty or a paediatric specialty. Should there be a cosmetic uh, specialty? Dr Goodwin, thanks very much for joining us today. That's all for this week. Next week, Martin McKee will be talking about the effects of the financial crisis on healthcare systems in Europe. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.